the topic at hand today is one which I suppose angels fear to tread and uh, then Christian introduced me to his brother-in-law Caleb here who is a student of scripture and I rather feel like the Baptist preacher who stood up one morning and said today our sermon will be taken from Genesis chapter 3 about the sin of Adam so we have three points where Adam was and where God was and finally a third point about baptism so I hope I don't do disservice to scripture so before we do anything let's go and turn to scripture itself to help us frame our thoughts and it is a familiar passage that we are to turn to Galatians chapter 5 and we will read from verse 16 on it's a passage that I fear has become so familiar that we as in many areas of scripture in the lives of those who have been brought in the life of the church we tend to dismiss it but I pray that you would as I would prayerfully consider it so that the Holy Spirit may use it to transform our hearts as we always say the goal of our class is not information but transformation so Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 26 but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do but if you are led by the Spirit you're not under the law now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these I warn you as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God but the fruit of the Spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the Spirit let us also keep in step with the Spirit let us not become conceited provoking one another envying one another this is the word of the Lord let's turn to the God of the word before we address these issues our father and our God we stand on holy ground for where your word is there you are because your word is life we pray that the Holy Spirit may be pleased to take this word apply it to our hearts and transform our lives into the image of Christ for beyond the pages of the scripture we seek you, Lord Jesus, the living word, and we pray this prayer in your name, giving thanks. Amen. Before I start, I would like to give out this book, which has been instrumental in helping me understand and begin the process of at least trying to understand the fruit of the Spirit. This is by Jerry Bridges, and I highly commend it. Unfortunately, one is not going to grow in the fruit of the Spirit by putting it under our pillow or on the shelf. So, who would like to be the one? There is Rita. Very good. Anyone else? You got four here. There we go. I sure hope that you will read it and saturate your life with it. But I, those who didn't get it, please invest in that. It's one which has blessed me immensely. 
But August always fills me with a little bit of trepidation because it's back to school time. It's been, I suppose, several decades since I got out of school, and yet the thought of going back to school fills me with trepidation, principally because in the Indian school system, memorization was key. And in most cases, you would have to go before the examiners with questions which would be asked, mostly to expose your ignorance and not about finding out what you knew. So that continued on even after you passed out of school that you had to go for job interviews which would involve. So in 1980 or so, a group of interviewees was waiting for an interview and the first candidate went in and these are the questions that he was asked. The first question as he sat down, the examiners threw at him was, in what year did India gain independence? Easy enough, he said 1947, August 15 to be exact, so it's coming up. The second question he was asked was, who is the father of our nation? To which the gentleman replied, many men fought for and laid claim to the title, and it is not correct to name only one person as the father. The examiner said, fair enough. And then he threw the third question, let's come to current events. What do you think is the reason for poverty in India? The man thought for a moment, he said, that's a very complicated question. The president of India has appointed a commission to look into this. So he said, very well, you may go. So he comes outside, he meets the other guys, and the other guys want to know, and the second fellow wants to know, can you please tell me what questions they asked? And he says, no, I signed a non-disclosure agreement. I cannot disclose the questions. Then he says, well, at least will you please tell me the answer? He said, oh, I thought for a moment. I said, yeah, I didn't sign any non-disclosure. I'm going to tell you the answers. <laughs> answer number one, 1947. Answer number two, many men fought and claim, laid claim to the title. It is not fair to name only one person as the father. Answer number three, it is a very complicated question. The president has appointed a commission to look into this matter. So this guy goes in, he's all full of confidence. Examiner says, Mr. Raj, please sit down. We have one clarification on your application we'd like to get, ask you. What is the year of your birth? 1947. What? You don't even look more than 20. How could it be 1947? What are you saying, man? Who's your father? Many men claim to the title, and it is not correct to say only one person could name that as father. What are you saying? How are you going to find out who your father is? That's a complicated question. The president has appointed a commission to look into this matter. Questionable answers, and so too are we when we are asked, who is a Christian? We give many varied answers many of which will be, I gave my life to Christ, I said a prayer. But the second question is even more complicated when we are asked, how do you know you're a Christian? How can you identify one? Well, that's what I was asking myself years ago, and I still ask myself that. And in fact, the apostle asks us to answer, ask that question in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. And he says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. The first question's answer is, what we've said before, a Christian is one who knows God as his father. And the second answer is, a Christian is a little Christ, one who looks like Christ, one who has the character of Christ, one who is growing into Christ-likeness. That is how we know we are mature. But when we come to a topic like this, 
I'm always worried that I come across as somebody who knows it all, and therefore I'm going to first say what Lewis said, those like me whose imagination far exceeds their obedience are subject to a just penalty. We easily imagine conditions far higher than what we have really achieved. And if we tell people what we have imagined, we may make them and ourselves believe we've really been there. And that's really what I'm going to share today. I've not been there. I'm in effect part of your journey. I'm preaching to myself, teaching to myself. You guys can just listen in. Of course, you are all fruit-bearing Christians, and therefore I know that this is not for you. It's only for your neighbor, right? So with that being said, we're going to start off with asking, what is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, we listed the character traits. The fruit of the Spirit is the character of God reflected in the lives of those who are united to Christ. It's basically nothing but the character of Christ. If you look at the traits that are listed here, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and then faithfulness, gentleness, and long and self-control, they are all the character traits of our Lord. God wants his children to reflect his character, and so he takes steps accordingly, first by regenerating them, giving them a new heart, which is the life of Christ implanted in the child of God, and then telling them, you are my children, I've adopted you, you will be like me. Therefore, be ye holy as I am holy. Christian character, the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4, is participation in the divine nature. It is not produced by us, but produced in us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God, and it is implanted. It is, implanted, it is implantation of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. You remember that Paul was a double PhD. He wasn't challenged in grammar. If you look at that, what does it say? The subject is singular, but the predicate is plural. Fruit of the Spirit. What is, why is it saying fruit versus gifts of the Spirit? That's because the fruit is one single thing. All of the fruit are in the believer, some of them in greater measure, some of them in the lesser measure. So I cannot say, well, I'm really not gentle. I'm just not built that way. If we are not naturally that way, the Lord expects us to be growing, which brings me to three pivotal statements that I want to make. Perhaps you should write it down like what I did on a four by four and keep it in front of your table because on your desk because we are prone to forget who we are and whose we are and why we are here. Statement number one, my goal in life, my goal in life is to please God. I didn't make that up. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, or whether it, we make it our aim, whether we live or die, to live pleasing unto the Lord. If you want to know one will of the Lord, which is you don't have to pray about it, to please God. That's the same as saying knowing God, fear God, to live obedient to God. My goal in life is to please God. So the next question is, it's a matter for questions, right? The next question automatically is, but how do I please God? Elementary, my dear Watson. It says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, that the God the Father witnessed of his Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Romans 8, 28 to 29 says, whom God called, he sanctified, he glorified, and the goal was to make them into the image of his Son. So I please God like, by becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's as simple as that. Christian means little Christ. 
My goal in life is to please God. Statement number two, I please God by becoming like Jesus. Third statement, God knows I will not be perfect, but he does expect me to be growing. Second Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.22 through 24, put off the old man, be renewed in your mind by the spirit, put on the new man in the righteousness and holiness. So, Christian character arises from participation in the divine nature. You know how we all have Christmas trees? Very rarely do we get the actual Christmas tree. We get an artificial Christmas tree and hang the ornaments on. That is not the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, not to make us outside like Christmas trees, which are for artificial trees. The fruit of the Spirit is organic, meaning it comes from within. It is also not mechanical. In other words, we can't say, well, you are lacking a little bit of love, so just try harder to love another pe people, another person. Most of us are like Linus, right? You know the famous statement? It's actually addressed to me. He said, you, you want to be a doctor? You don't love anybody. To which Linus replied, I love mankind. It's just people I can't stand. <laughs> so we can't excuse ourselves like that. The fruit of the Spirit is fundamentally relational. Rather than originating within us, it flows to us from our union with Christ. That's key. The secret of this flow is our union with Christ. Unless you abide in the wine, you cannot bear fruit. So the fruit of the Spirit, again, is the character of Christ reflected in the lives of those who are united with Christ. If today there was a law, that says that those who are looking like Christ will be convicted, would there be enough proof to convict us? Very important question, right? Are we making the gospel attractive? It says, uh, somebody, I think my friend sent it to me, some people bring delight wherever they go, some whenever they go. What is the fragrance that you and I leave a room when we exit a conversation? It is, is it the fragrance of Christ? How much are we looking like Christ? You know, the gifts are not for all. Maybe some of the gifts, but the fruit has to be for all. Do better? Yeah, that's moralism. I could give you a Boy Scout manual, but we can say that God's promise is that he will make us into his image, and he who began a good work will complete it. And I want to introduce a term here, uh, character matters, we talked about Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, which is putting off and putting on. 2 Corinthians 3.18 states, we are all beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So God's purpose is that each of his children would be transformed into the character of Christ, which makes the gospel attractive. We talked about the father of the nation in that joke that I said. The father of the nation is considered as Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, on, on whose precepts of nonviolence MLK Jr. built his civil disobedience movement. But you know, he had this one thing which he said convicting. I knew only one Christian and he died 2,000 years ago. I love their Christ, I can't stand their Christian. Why do you think such testimonies came about? Are we known more for what we are against and then what we are for? How sweet is the character of Christ when it flows out of us? It makes it attractive. You can't bring, make a horse drink water, but you can make the water tasty. So, 
dependent responsibility is the term. You want to write it out because it is one which you will find again and again repeated. This is the, this is the basic of it. The fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Holy Spirit entirely. It is all of Him, and yet all the responsibilities, all of it is ours as well. And this seems to be paradoxical. It's not either or, but both and. It's not either or, but both and. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. You know this verse, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's our responsibility. For, here comes the dependence part, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's neither act, not activism, which is self-reliant activity, neither is it apathy, God-reliant passivity. We grow in the spirit, but we also have a duty to grow. It is the fruit of the spirit within us, but also the result of our personal efforts. That seems almost paradoxical. Unlike justification, whereby we are declared that we are righteous, sanctification is not a one-sided activity. God expects us to be growing. And so if we understand the fruit of the Spirit as character traits, we must ourselves work, then we will become discouraged. But as we apply our hearts and minds to the means of grace or the spiritual disciplines that we are talking about, which is to study and read and meditate the Word of God, communion with God through prayer, and vitally obedience to the revealed will of God as given in His Word, then we develop not just the activities which help us to become more like Christ, but an attitude of obedience leads to a lifestyle of obedience, which is nothing but discipleship, or as Eugene Peterson used to say, discipleship is one long obedience in the same direction. So we are responsible for the acts of obedience to be preserved, to be protected, to be increased, to be strengthened and improved. And all through this, we are to keep in mind that we are dependent on the wine. John 15, Peter, uh, John 15 records the conversation that Jesus taught to his disciples. If you abide in me and I abide in you, then you will bear much fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Fruit there is not the result of our evangelistic encounters, but the character of Christ made into Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So our dependent responsibility is very important. I just want to pause here again and say this. We don't get saved by fruit. We are not saved by fruit. But the faith that saves us is not fruitless. That's Tim Keller. Much of what I'm talking about is from the core seminars of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, but I drew from Jerry Bridges, whose book I handed out, from Tim Keller and Alistair Begg. So if there's any good thing that I say, it's all of God. The rest I'll take credit. So we are talking about fruit bearing, and we are talking about the result of our union with Christ, but we should never presume that this earned something, and our life, our, our life always should reflect what Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Luther said of this verse, the sweetness of the gospel is in the personal pronouns that he loved me and gave himself for me. So we talked about what is the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about why character matters. We talked about the fact that we have a dependent responsibility. Now I want to lay the foundation for how the fruit of the Spirit is to be developed and how it is to be cultivated. First is this term called devotion. 
Devotion to God is the only acceptable motive. We can talk a lot about devotion. I encourage you to read Jerry Bridges, but basically devotion is a composite. If you think of devotion as being the apex of a triangle, one corner of a triangle is the fear of God, the other corner of the triangle is the love of God. The fear of God is the type of fear a child has towards his father, one of veneration at his majesty, and one, it is not the servile fear, which is the fear of a slave or a person who's a prisoner, always wondering whether he's going to be punished, but servile fear has been replaced by filial fear, the fear of the child of God who knows that his father loves him and cares for him and he's secure in that father's love and yet he doesn't approach the father flippantly. And all because the love of God the Father has been shed abroad in our hearts preeminently in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. But the devotion that we have is not just for the gifts of God but for God himself. That's the key. You remember the temptation of Joseph? Joseph always seemed to be in the habit of losing his coat, right? Well, on the occasion that he lost his coat in Potiphar's house, you remember when Potiphar said, come lie with me, he didn't say, well, this is really not a good time. I'm afraid I'll lose my job. I can't do that because how can I sin against God? His primary motivation for living a holy life was not because he'd be find, found out, not because he was afraid of his reputation, but because he didn't want to dishonor the name of his heavenly father. I remember the incident where a little boy, maybe he was eight or nine, was being teased by his friends saying, we were asking him to come and do something. And his friends taunted him saying, oh, you don't want to do that because you're afraid of what your father will do to you. And the little boy said, no, that's not it at all. I'm just afraid what my actions will do to my father. That's really the fear of God. Do you and I not sin because we are afraid of punishment or because we love God and even if there was no hell, we would not want to sin like Joseph. That's devotion to God. That's the devotion that says, my heart longs for you as the deer pants for the water. That's the devotion like Paul who says, I want to know Christ. At the end of his life, he's saying, I want to know Christ. Paul's goal was not just Christ-centeredness, but he also wanted to be Christ-like. That's why he said, I want to know Christ the fellowship of his sufferings, that I, may be, that I may find him. That's really devotion to God. We could talk more, but I encourage you to read the book. Number two, the power or enablement comes for a, God, for a godly life comes from the risen Christ. We've already told that, but here is another example. If I had a toaster and I put a slice of bread into it and expect the toaster to toast it, my wife would probably come and say, have you connected it to the electric current? right? That's really what we are talking about here. We are dependent on God for the power, but yet we are to take the bread and put it into the toaster, just as God speaks to us in his word. But we have to actually open the word and say, speak to me. That's why we pray beyond the sacred pages, we speak to you. Show me myself, show me my savior, show me my sin, for you alone I seek. So, the power for enablement for a godly life comes from the risen Christ. Follow along in your notes. Number three, though the power for Christ-like character comes from Christ, the responsibility for displaying it and developing it, that is ours. Why did Paul, there are four instances in the Bible, in the New Testament, where it says, train yourself to be godly. We don't want to propound let go and let God. That's not biblical. 
God wants us, remember, work out your own salvation. That doesn't mean you work out how you are to be saved in the sense of being saved from the penalty of sin. We can't do anything, which, by the way, is a good rabbit trail. Salvation is in three tenses. In the past, God has saved us from the penalty of sin because Christ took the punishment and Jesus paid us all. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But in the present, God is saving us from the power of sin and creating in us the character of Christ. And in the future, God will save us from the presence of sin itself. So the penalty, the power, and the presence have all been taken care of in Christ. But now we have to train yourself. We are to be disciplining ourselves in the disciplines of grace. There, are, there is the duty to Christ. There is the discipline to Christ before the delight in Christ will come. But the goal is always devotion and delight in Christ. We don't do this because we want to earn brownie points. But the, book, the word of God says you are God's children behave like God's children. Religion says you need to behave like God's children before you can become God's children. Christianity says you are God's child, therefore be like one. The development of godly, number four, the development of godly character entails both putting off and putting on character traits. Let me ask you a question. When does a thief stop being a thief? Put him in jail? Possibly, but then he's only in between jobs. Paul says the answer, let him who steal no longer steal, putting off, but let him start giving, putting on. In the Bible, you don't pursue holiness just by saying, stop doing this. You also, the Bible also says, start doing this. Saved from sin unto Christ. We are saved from a life that we want to live on our own to a life of dependence on Christ that we may display the glory of the gospel and the beauty of Christ. Newton sang that, right? Our duty and our pleasure once opposites before, now that we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. There is duty, but there is also pleasure. And here is a tough one. We are to pursue growth in all of the graces that are considered the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit does not produce lopsided Christians. Meaning, we are to grow. That's why it's the singular fruit. I cannot say, you know, I can easily be loving and joyful and kind, but, you know, that person gets my goat. I just can't stand that person. I don't want to be gentle with that person. He deserves to be told. No. Those areas which we find ourselves natural to our temperament are those we need to watch out for because what we are natural in, we won't depend on Christ. And those areas which we are not growing, we need to confess and say, Lord, make me more like you. Maybe for some of us, I know what I'm waiting for, Christian Dennis class on the second one, because those areas I need to be more careful about because I can say, yeah, I'm not a bad guy, I'm usually joyful. The question is, what makes me joyful? You know, one of the toughest questions I have answering, what's a good day to me? And when I answer, it'll reveal my heart. Is it a good day because people spoke well of me, everything went well, and everything was hunky-dory, or is my joy in the Lord? So we are to pursue growth in all of the graces. For some, we have to depend more on God. For some, we have to confess that we have lived it according to our way. Now, Growth in all of these areas, number six, is progressive and never finish. Sanctification is progressive. There is progressive sanctification. God is in the process of making us more like Christ, but it's not, the knowledge of God is not an instantaneous download. When James Caulfield was the president of Hiram College, a man approached him and said, you know, you have a long course. Can you make my son graduate in three years? And Garfield replied, depends what you want to make of your child. 
when God makes a squash, he takes it only a few months, but he makes an oak, he takes several years. Christian character takes time and effort, yes, but it's a dependent responsibility. When God regenerated us, he gave us a new heart. This new heart has an habitual inclination. The orientation of our heart has changed. Today there's much talk about orientation. Yeah, we are all oriented. We are born dead on arrival, oriented away from God, but God in his grace changed our heart, gave us a new heart which wants to seek him. And therefore, it wants to be like him. So the heartbeat of every godly person is, I want to be like Christ. And so when we say we want to be like Christ, we are looking at the character of Christ. And that brings us to, well, how does this happen? We cannot talk about the fruit of the Spirit without talking about the Spirit himself. But herein lies much confusion. So I thought I will take some time to talk about the Holy Spirit. The first thing to do is that most of us want an inward explosion when it comes to the Holy Spirit. We don't want an inward communion. I encourage you to read Knowing God by Packer, particularly the chapter Sons of God. That chapter changed how I understood the ministry of the Holy Spirit when it comes to his children. There are two pivotal verses that we have to consider, and they are there in your handout. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. You have received the spirit of adoption, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. And a pivotal verse again, a corollary, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, that is prompting you to cry, Abba, Father. I talked about adoption, right? It is the highest blessing of the gospel. Justification is a foundational blessing. To be declared righteous by the judge, that is a wonderful thing. To be declared totally free, now you are like my son, that's wonderful. But to be told by the judge, you are now a member of my family, come and eat at my table, that is the highest blessing to be told. That's why Solomon, writing of it, says, he brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. Now, adoption gives us the focal point not only for unlocking, but for bringing together all that the New Testament teaches us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when we look at this, there are three ways in which the Holy Spirit functions in our lives. Number one, and you can look at it in your handout. I took some time to put that simply because I think it's so important to understand when people are asking, am I really filled with the Spirit? And all kinds of pitfalls and anxieties and perplexities abound. Number one, he makes us conscious, sometimes vividly conscious, even when the perverse part of our nature denies it, that we are God's children by free grace through Christ Jesus. He tells us who we are and whose we are, and that is his work of giving faith, assurance, and joy. And the work of the Holy Spirit is always mediated through the work of, through the word of God. The Holy Spirit does not deal in any other currency. It is the word that he will lift up and say, you are God's. Assurance, faith, and joy come through the Holy Spirit. There is an internal evidence, there is an external evidence. If you want to know more, read 1 John or 1 John. The second way in which we can see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that he moves us to look to God as our Father. How? Showing him the respectful boldness and unlimited trust that is natural to children who are secure in an adored father's love and care. 
the child knows that he's secure. Only the child of the king can wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water. That is his work of making us cry, Abba, Father. The attitude described, that is one of respectful boldness and unlimited trust, knowing that you are secure in an adored father's care. That is what this cry, Abba, Father, expresses. expresses. The attitude, it's just a short word, Abba, Father. You remember how Jesus would always pray, Our Father, My Father. Only on the cross he didn't use the word Father because on the cross he was broken from his father so that our relationship would be restored as a father. So number three, it's very important. This is really, really important, so listen carefully. He does three things in our lives. He says, manifest the family likeness. You are royal children. Be like royal children. That's what it means to conform to Christ. But he does more. He says, further the family welfare. Look out for the family. That's what it means to love the brethren. You see how the Holy Spirit now manifests? He'll be reminding you, you are a royal child. Manifest royal character because you have the royal blood. William Gurnall, one of the Puritans, used to say, say not that you are a born of God and you are a royal child unless you can show royal children, royal character. Lastly, he also says, maintain the family honor. In a society like India, family name meant everything. The honor of the family name. God is concerned about his name. That's why the Lord's prayer ends like that, right? Let your kingdom come, let your uh, rule be established. So maintain the family honor, which is to make much of God so that people may know the kabod, the Old Testament word for glory is kabod, the weightiness of God, the glory of God, that God is majestic and he is worthy of all our honor. So act like royal children, further the royal family's welfare and maintain the king's honor. That is what the spirit is doing in our lives. And so as we find an increasing concern in us to know this God, to please him, to hate what he hates, that is sin, and to love what he loves, that is holiness and obedience, that's how the spirit becomes manifest. So what is then our upward, what is our goal? Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, 10 to 11, we already alluded to it, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see that? That is Paul's goal, that I may know God. He's longing for Christ-centeredness, that Christ may become big and he may become small. Christ-likeness, Christ-centeredness and Christ-likeness, those are the twin goals of the child of God. And what is our upward goal? Our upward goal in Philippians 1.6, which is that we are being progressively changed more and more into Christ's image. Conduct is always feeding character, but character is also always feeding conduct. I think Peter said this, make every effort to add to your faith godliness. Make every effort. That means we are to be running the race. There is effort involved. Sure, it's dependent effort, but it is effort involved. So I want to make one digression again to say that many times we don't realize the role of habits and desires in Christian growth. If tomorrow... I get up in the morning and say, you know, I have to decide whether I'm going to put my left foot down or my right foot down. It'll take a while for me to get out of bed. Then I go into my car and I say, okay, I don't know whether I should adjust my mirror or first check and make sure that all the uh, air is all there in the tires. Last time you got into the car, you remember getting into the car. Next thing you know, you're at church. How? Because it's become habituated. You are doing things automatically. Just as it is easy to put on bad habits, Good habits also need to be built up. 
So the habits of the heart, pursuing God, his word, his prayer, and also to seek communion with him and to obey becomes habits. But our desires are fed by those habits. As someone said, you know, I've got the angel on one side and this on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. And I, somebody asked, well, who wins? One I feed most. That's why it's important that we put off and put on. Habits and desires make everything happen. You know that old saying, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a destiny or a lifestyle. So many of us are used to say things like the Old Testament lessons, which says, you know, you got to be like that little boy who was willing to be generous. Of course, that's not the real point of the lesson at all, or be like David and so on. The be like is the pitfall of the Sunday school. We don't need to be like anyone but Jesus, but we can't. It's like somebody, I think it was John Stott. I mean, if anything good, again, I say, you know, everybody else spoke it. I'm just repeating it. John Stott in an article called Radical Disciple, you can go Google it. He ends it quoting William Temple. He says, it's no use giving me a play like Shakespeare's Hamlet or King Lear and asking me to write it. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. But if the spirit of Shakespeare could come and live inside me, then I could write it. So also it's no use telling me, be like Jesus, because I can't. But you know the good news? God's purpose and will is that we become like Christ, and God's way of making us like Christ is to fill us with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we can pray, Lord, make me more like you, because he has given us the power and the desire. It's a dreary holiness. Sam Storm said this. Listen to this. It's good stuff, which I want you to think about. It's a dreary holiness, indeed, that is merely resisting sin. The joy of holiness is in having heard a sweeter song. This is the true meaning of grace. Grace does not demonize our desires, nor does it destroy them, nor does it lead us to deny them. Grace is the work of the Holy Spirit in transforming our desires so that knowing Jesus becomes sweeter than illicit sex, sweeter than money and what it can buy, sweeter than every fruitless joy. Grace is God satisfying our souls with his son so that we are ruined for anything else. As we grow more and more like Christ, it's truly like that song we sing, right? As we look in his, full in his wonderful face, the things of this earth start fading away. Let me ask you a question. Over the past week, how strong a motivation for our actions has been devotion to God versus a concern for our own reputation? Some of us are good people because we want to maintain a good reputation. To what extent would you say God is at the center of your thoughts? What do you think about when you don't think about anything? Is God the center of our life? Or is he an add-on? You know, we are used to taking supplements. Oh yeah, I'll just take Jesus, I'll add on. He seems to be a good enough guy. Oh, you know, he makes us do some nice things and so I think gets, gets some, like a diversified portfolio. Or Jesus is the center. So, having asked those questions, now we are ready to begin the lesson, which is the fruit of the Spirit. By now you're saying, well, I'm ready to get out of here. Well, I don't blame you. I suppose that the fruit of the Spirit is one which sometimes is easy to talk about. Well, you just need to be a little more loving, a little more joyful, because, you know, God, if he exists, is going to reward nice people for trying their best. No. The Bible is about how a good God 
blesses people through his son Jesus who don't deserve anything. So with that, here is love. What love is not is what we're going to start off. In 1993, we had the classic hit, what's love got to do with it? It's just a second-hand emotion, right? Well, many of us said amen to that and sang along. It had a nice beat, but that's where it stopped. So we're going to talk about how love is not. But I have a habit that certain radio stations have become my favorite. And my favorite radio station is WIFM. Heard of it? I guarantee you're probably all listening to it. What's in it for me? Right? That's not what love is. Neither is it a second-hand or even a first-hand emotion. Love is not tolerance or acceptance. It's not even what our tendencies are. It's not following our heart. Thankfully, it's not defined by our character, because here is the definition of love by saying what it's not. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It does not insist on its own way is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I got a fit trying to put my name there. I said, Dan is patient. Oh, <coughs> kind. That's what I would do. Put that name say, saying, are you kind? Or are you the person saying, wow, I'm glad that person has left the room. What do we boast about? It says here it does not boast. Are we boasting in the Lord or our accomplishments or family or education? What is it? So love is not envious. Love is not boasting in the things of this world because 1 John 2.16, everything passes away except the love of Christ. Love is neither rude nor impolite. We have no trouble, you know, when we are on the road. Are we quick to let people get on our nerves. You know what we're actually saying when somebody cuts us off and we get so upset, we're actually saying, how come you don't think about me as much as I think about me? Do we love sin? And how about this? Love does not delight in evil. So how much do we serve our fellow human beings? Do we love sin or do we love God? When we sin, it's always that we find the sin more pleasurable than serving God, isn't it? So let's consider what love actually is, because it's contrast is the mother of clarity. So said Oskinus. So that's why we are contrasting what love is not with what love is. Here's the definition that I put together. It's not original. Love is the faithful, enduring commitment to the highest good of another, rooted in and flowing out of the love of Christ, which does not depend on the merit or the performance of that person, and manifested in thought, word, and deed. It originates in the love of Christ and manifests in the commitment of the will which brings our emotions under its jurisdiction. And here is a striking thing. You know how you can know a baby is newborn? Look at the belly button. You know what is the belly button of the new birth? Love for the brethren. Beloved, let us love one another. 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Anyone who does not know God, does not love, does not know God, because God is love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
He who says he loves God and does not love his brethren does not know God. So we are to not only love one another, we are to love our neighbors, Matthew 22, and our enemies even. That's hard. But that is true love because remember my definition, it is the commitment of the will to the welfare, to the good, to the highest good of another. Here are five marks from Christ, of Christian love. Alistair said this. It takes the initiative. It doesn't wait. I mean, it might be simple, like it takes the initiative to meet a new person at church and say, hello, I'm so-and-so, how are you? Thank you for coming. You cannot ignore the needs of a brother saying, well, why don't we just bless you and not help him what he needs. In India, we used to have a, uh, the missionaries used to have a motto, soup, and then soap, and then salvation. First feed the man, treat the man, and then tell him about Christ. Otherwise, you don't have a platform. You also, love also forgives without apologies for the wrong done to him or her. It is not a matter of feelings, but a matter of our wills. And you can't say, well, I've been loving for three months, I need a vacation. It's the permanent priority of the Christian life. As in all the fruit, even the horticultural fruit, you need to cultivate the ground. So how do we cultivate love? We need to meditate on the great love that God showed us. You remember that verse that Luther said? The sweetness of the gospel is in the personal pronouns. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That should result in humility because when we see how unworthy we are, we are going to reach out to love another person. Do we love the church? You know, the old saying used to be, oh, to dwell with the saints above, that will be grace and glory. But to dwell with the saints below, that's quite another story. That's probably many of our songs. You know, sometimes we used to sing that Gaither song. You remember that song? I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. For many of us, that song is, I'm surprised that you are a part of the family of God. Not so glad, I'm surprised. But that's whom we are called to, love. And therefore, we will rephrase 1 Corinthians 13 like this. I am patient with you because I love you and want to forgive you. I am kind to you because I love you and want to help you. I do not envy your possessions or your gifts because I love you and want you to have the best. You know, sometimes rejoicing in the blessings that God has blessed another brother or sister with is harder than to sorrow with them in their sorrow. I'll let you put that in your sanctification pipe and smoke it. I'm not proud because I love you and I want to you esteem you before myself. I'm not rude because I love you and care about your feelings. I do not keep a record of your wrongs because I love you and love covers a multitude of, my, of your sins. Love is not just merely a character trait as the inner disposition of the soul. It's the fountainhead from which every other character trait flows. How do we grow? First, we know that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform us. So meditating on the love of God from Scripture. The second is to pray. Confess if we have been unloving. The Holy Spirit will convict us and show us, is this how Jesus was? You need to be like royal children, and royal children manifest royal manners, royal character. Finally, we must obey. Oswald Sanders said this, and primarily to teach us, it is a danger with the children of God becoming too familiar with sublime things. They've heard it so often, taught it so often, that they mistake the exposition of the truth for living out the truth. 
before we say what must I say about this, we have to ask of every command in scripture, what must I do? Because James says, he who does the will of God is the one who will be perfected. Can we structure love? Can we structure the work of the Holy Spirit? No to both. But we can structure our responsibilities in seeking to grow in love. How? Spending time in the word, setting apart time to commune with God, confession and prayer and worship. And we must do them all with the utter realization. Here's the key, dependent responsibility, dependent responsibility. We have to do them all with the utter realization that only God can cause love to grow within our souls. But that is God's will, and therefore when we pray, he is going to answer that, because when we ask according to his will, he promises that he will answer, and he will give us our requests. Then we go to the next two, which are actually like a triad. But before we go, here's a question which convicted me. What hinders us from loving others? Preoccupation with our personal concerns? Desire to spend our money on ourselves rather than to help another in need? Maybe some of us have been hurt, deeply hurt, and we are unwilling to take any risk. Pray that we might, by God's grace, overcome the obstacles that limit your love. Let your love be extravagant, just as God's love was extravagant. So we move on to joy. Christian joy, again, is not what it is. Not the absence of trouble, pain, and suffering. It's not like somebody, I'm really joyful this weekend, I'm going to have a bratwurst. Some of us, our joys are too little, right? Like what Lewis said. You remember what Lewis said? God finds our desires too minor. We are fooling about with sex and ambition and money when it's like a child who's content to make mud pies when the holiday at a sea is what is offered to him. Joy does not come from cheap triumphs, like a little vacation or a little promotion. Yeah, all that is good. The only reason we can be joyful is because the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's fixed on Christ. Here's the definition of joy. It is a supernatural delight in the person, the purposes, the plans, and the people of God to demonstrate to the world the superiority of life lived in God by faith in Christ as the supreme treasure of our life. If Christ is the supreme treasure, then we delight in his person, in his plans, in his purposes, and the people of God. Chesterton said this joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Why? Because the fundamental questions of life for the Christian have been answered. Who you are, where you are, where did you come from, where are you going, is there meaning to life, have all been answered in Christ. I like how Adrian Rogers put this. Happiness is like a thermometer, it registers condition, joy is like a thermostat, it controls them. Constantly delighting in God and what he has done. I'm just going to skip ahead and I'm going to use the catechism because I think the catechism helps us to understand. There are three things which help and I like the way, I like alliteration, you can see, you know, I've got a little cognitive issue here, I need the alliteration. Alistair put it this way, we know we are guilty but we need grace. But when we have received grace, we respond with gratitude, which leads to joy. Today we had a lot of thunder, and so gratitude always follows grace, like thunder follows lightning. So said Karl Barth. So here is the question of the catechism. What is my only comfort in life 
and in death. Listen, this is from the Heidelberg Catechism. I think we should memorize this. The Catechism is not anything to do with Catholics. It's a question and answer way of learning which helps to remember things. Remember doctrine leads to devotion and devotion leads to doxology. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Here's the second question, which is why I put it here. What must you know to live and to die in the joy of this comfort? Listen carefully. Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I'm set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So that is really what happens when we dwell on the grace that we have shown, which answers our guilt before God. It leads to gratitude, and that gratitude overflows with joy. And one person said, a joy shared is a joy doubled. That's why we share the joy of Christ. John the Apostle wrote, my joy is complete when I see my children walking in the truth. How joyful are you when the trials of life come? Painful circumstances are people who are brought into my life by God to demonstrate the superiority of a life lived by faith in Christ and also to renew and transform my character. How joyful am I? It's not a happy, clappy feeling as much as a set attitude saying, my delight is in the Lord. He is sovereign. He is good and wise. And I am afraid that would be a wise person who says the time has come and so I will finish with peace, leaving you in peace. And that is, peace is the result of our justification with God. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of the peace that comes from knowing my sins are forgiven. And it is not only the peace with God, but it's also peace with people and peace within ourselves. It's not in a person or a philosophy. It's, sorry, it's not in a program or in a philosophy, but in a person. So how do we develop these these character traits, dependent responsibility, dependent responsibility. We cultivate all these by focusing on who Christ is from the word, praying to the Lord that we might develop that slowly but surely and over the long haul. So patience is nothing but steadfastness, endurance. I don't want to be like the sprint runner. I want to be like the marathon runner who's there till the end. And patience is also the old word that is used in the King James is long-suffering, steadfastness, endurance. A word about, uh, uh, last thing about patience is that we need to cultivate patience when God puts us through endurance because sometimes we are quick to say, Lord, I want to drive through Christianity, I drive through course and sanctification, but God doesn't work that way. God's ways are always, he knows his timetable. There is no daylight savings time for him. The fruit, interest, interestingly, in patience, we find that it, in one sense, the grace of the Lord is like a multicolored thread, but from far off, it looks like one color, but you come into it and you see different threads. But patience is probably more like nothing, no other trait in coming out of a life of devotion. 
because here, listen to this, and with this we will close. All character traits of godliness, and this is Jerry Bridges, grow out of and have their foundation in our devotion to God. Remember devotion? It's the result of the fear of God and the love of God, and so that we desire God himself, the triangle I said. But the fruit of patience must grow out of that relationship in a particular way. Only as we fear God, we will submit to the trials he sends or allows. And only as we deeply apprehend his love for us in Christ, will we find the courage to bear up under them. Trials always change our relationship with God. Either they drive us to him or they drive us away from him. The extent of our fear of him and our awareness of his love for us determines in which direction we will move. That is our confidence and our hope that through it all, he who began a good work will complete it. He who began a good work will complete it. He has planted the life of Christ in us at regeneration when we were born again. We are to live out that life so that people who see us may see Christ in us, as Paul said, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Hopefully, we have now seen how the spiritual disciplines aid our biblical spirituality, and I hope that you will all come back to listen to Christian Dennett. I, for one, am planning to come back. I suppose it is to realize that at the end of the day, it is Christ alone who is perfect, but thank God that he is in the process of perfecting that which he has completed. So let me go ahead and give us maybe five minutes for questions, and then we will close with prayer. Don't ask me, are you patient and kind? Yes, I'm not. I mean, my wife will tell you more, but I can save that for another discussion. You know, when I asked her, you know, the sermon, you know, the teaching is so long, do you think I should put more fire into it? And she said, well, perhaps you should put more of this into the fire. So uh, that's why you got the lesser version, but I hope that you will take time. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it once it's there, not because I like the sound of my voice, but because there is so much material that you might have to chew on it. But having chewed on it, go before the Lord and say, Lord, it is you who works in me both to will and to do of your good pleasure. So change me into becoming more like Christ so that people around me may know that Jesus Christ is attractive, that we might make the gospel attractive. Any questions or comments? Well, much to pray about, so I'm assuming that your lack of questions is an indication that you have set your mind to train yourself to be godly. So let me go ahead and pray and close us. Again, our Father and our God, as we go through the fruit of the Spirit, we are reminded anew of the great love that our Lord had for us in dying for us. While we were still sinners, he loved us and gave himself for us so that we might become the first fruit, so that he might become the first fruit and we might become his children displaying his character. So, Father, we ask that you would create in us a new heart, a heart which longs for you, a heart which longs to display the beauty of Christ to a watching world so that the nations may be glad and they might come to know this Christ and worship you. Father, we pray that this week you might create in us that desire, that longing to know you more, like Christ, like Paul wanted to know, Christ-centeredness and Christ-likeness may be our twin goals. And this we ask for Christ's sake, through the Holy Spirit, who is the one who empowers us for service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.